morning again. I gotta be honest, I'm not gonna take it personally, but it feels a lot like speaking at SeaWorld, and this is the splash zone that everyone's avoiding, because there's like, what, three rows? I'm gonna assume it's something to do with the air conditioning that hits you right in the face of that front row, but it's fine. Um, okay, I'm gonna leave that there. Um, well, good morning again. My name's Phil. I'm one of the pastors here on the team. Moses um, set the scene for this four or five week series on Acts um, last week, kind of starting um, at the end, uh, uh, finishing the race, the impact that, that Jesus is coming have and how we should be compelled to share that impact with other people. And so we're going to take a focused look over the next um, few weeks over the first half of Acts. Now, even this morning, trying to discern how much of that Bible scripture section to read is kind of hard because there's so much in Acts. You could go to almost just a couple of verses or you could just keep going and going and going and going and going. And there's so much in Acts about the early church, about how it all, how it all began, how kind of we ended up doing this here, as it were. Um, and although Acts 1 is obviously the beginning of a book in the Bible, it's not the beginning of the story. It's the second part of a story. Um, Acts largely tells us about Paul, about his missionary journey. Luke writes this account. He, he wrote the, the Gospel of Luke, where he told us about what Jesus did and what he taught. And then this book, the kind of the sequel, as it were, he tells us what the risen Jesus continues to do and what he continues to teach through the Holy Spirit and through his followers. The narrative of Acts spans about 30 or so years, which is kind of good to keep in mind because you read the, the book of Acts, it feels like so much happens and you could almost kind of think that each week something else happens. Well, really, it's multiple years. Think of the time it took to travel, all those missionary journeys took time. So it was actually a significant length of time of all these events took place. And that's helpful to have as we kind of um, settle into what this journey looked like. But what also is important is that the, the beginning of Acts, Acts 1, overlaps the end of the Gospel of Luke by about 40 days or so, so about a month or so. So I think it seems right to assume that the last words Jesus said, recorded in Luke 24 and again in Acts 1, are pretty important. They're meant to be used as words to guide the disciples in the time between the ascension and Jesus' return, which is incidentally the time we find ourselves in today. So he starts that book of Acts. He, he references or addresses this guy named Theophilus. Now, Theophilus means loved by God, so it seems plausible that, that this refers to, to everyone, to all believers. And we read the, 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 letter, the, the book of Acts in, the, in that light, really, but... It's widely accepted that Theophilus is probably an actual person. Um, he was, we don't really know, but it seems like he's someone of, of authority, of influence, um, and, and, and what, what Luke was trying to do was really confirm and affirm what he'd seen and heard and kind of establish it correctly as he went out to go and influence others. We don't really know who Theophilus is, so if you, if you look up, if you read up about it, you'll find lots of theories because that's what believers like to do is focus on things that don't really matter. But um, we think that's what, what the book was about. And so what I want to focus on from the passage that Jasmine just read is there's, there's three things. That um, there's a promise, there's great power, and there's a purpose. And this first chapter of Acts outlines those three huge themes. 
and we see them woven throughout the rest of the book. All 28 chapters basically are those three themes coming back to us. So before we jump in, let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for that gift of being able to discover you, to be led by you, to learn about you, and to become more like you. So we ask that you impress it upon our hearts and minds this morning. Speak to us now. Amen. So the first thing, a great promise is fulfilled. So in that verse 4, once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He tells them to wait. He tells the disciples to just, just wait. Don't leave Jerusalem just yet. Don't jump into action ill-prepared. Don't race off. Don't do something dumb. Now, we have, um, we have three kids. We have a six-year-old a five-year-old and a three-year-old. That's right, right? Six, yeah, okay, that's right, okay, good. I suddenly thought, you're almost seven, that's what made me think of it. But, um, so we have three young kids. Um, baking, decorating cakes, it's a good activity for kids. It's very educational, it's time-consuming, it's really fun. You know, it starts off with choosing a box of cake mix at the grocery store, right? We choose like chocolate or yellow or whatever. You then mix all the, you're measuring, you're mixing, you're reading instructions, you're doing math all that kind of stuff. You mix it all together. There's some science in there. You put it in the oven. And then you have to wait for what feels like a comparable lifetime for the thing to bake. It's really hard. That's now it's hard. We have to wait. And then when you get it out, you have to wait again. Because if you frost the thing immediately after, if you've ever done this, it is an instant disaster. If you frost an even slightly warm cake, it will be an absolute disaster. Frustrating, perhaps, waiting so much. But timing is important. Patience can be important. A few weeks ago, I described my, my journey into full-time ministry, and it included periods of, of waiting. Sometimes timing is important. God's timing is important. And Jesus reminds them that God has promised this gift, a gift that's worth waiting for, that will change the outcome of what will come next. And that's this promise, this gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is something that God promised in the Old Testament too. This is not a brand new thing, as, as you might think. What's referenced in Acts 2 in the next chapter is, is a prophecy from Joel. Joel chapter 2, 28 says, Then after doing all those things, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. So it's not new. It's not a brand new idea. It's an old promise that God is going to pour out his spirit on all believers. He wants to live and reside in his people, in all believers, regardless of gender, of race, of income, of education, of age, of right-handed, left-handed, whatever. It doesn't matter. He wants to reside in each and every one of us. And this was true even in the time of the Exodus, in the time of Moses. This nation of Israel was chosen to be set apart as an example. They were to show what it looks like to be a nation close to God and to be blessed by him. Moses himself, he's leading, and he's interacting with God. He's spending weeks, months with God up on the mountain. And through those encounters, God tells Moses time and time again that he wants to be among his people. He's not just a God of the heavens. He's not just a God far apart from his people. He wants to be among them. Adam and Eve in the garden, he walked among them. 
It's a major narrative through the Old Testament that God wants to be with his people. It didn't just happen at the cross. And that promise leads to a great power that is unleashed. And that great power is the Holy Spirit. And this passage in Acts reminds us of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In the Old Testament, there's times where God filled people with his spirit. They were kind of special, though. They were few and far between that's in record. As they moved from place to place on their journey to the, to the promised land, they carried with them this, this tabernacle, a tent, basically, specifically made to house the Ark of the Covenant where God would reside, this physical representation of God's presence among his people. In Exodus 31, the Lord said to Moses, look, I have specifically chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, grandson of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the spirit of God, giving him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. He is a master craftsman, expert in working with gold and silver and bronze. He's skilled in engraving and mounting gemstones and in carving wood. He is a master at every craft. And that's the first occasion recorded in scripture where someone was filled by the Spirit. And here's what I think is really interesting. It wasn't Moses or Abraham, but this guy that we don't know much about. The Spirit isn't reserved for certain leaders or personalities. Instead, God chooses someone, maybe with an incredible skill, but someone who's open and available and willing for the Spirit to develop those skills with divine power for a job that God has in mind. Bezalel goes on to make the items that God wants for the tabernacle following this very specific set of instructions that God provides. And I think we often um, assume that the Holy Spirit will only work in spontaneity. And that does happen. So we, we need to be open to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. That is, that is very true. But I don't think we should be too afraid or so afraid that, that anything we plan or, or strategize might quench the work of the Spirit. I think this passage shows that there can and there should be plans for what he wants. There was plans for the temple. There was plans for the tabernacle, how it was to be built. We can invite the Spirit to help us prepare for things as well as help us when we find ourselves in the middle of things. And it gives us a clue, I think, about how, uh, or about what happens when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. I think he builds this place to reside. God has high standards, which is why we need Jesus in the, in the first place. You know, we can't make, we can't meet God's perfect standards. We need the grace of God. We need the atonement that Jesus gives on the cross, his forgiveness, that reconciliation. It's the only way we can be made right with God again. And that reconciliation, that forgiveness, that acceptance is offered to everyone, regardless of what they initially bring. But there is a process and a journey to becoming a place where the Spirit can reside. The Israelites built a tent when they were on the move. It was temporary. God has a more permanent place in mind with specific instructions of how it should be built. If the Spirit enters our lives and all we bring is a tent, then God has some work to do to change us to be the place that he wants us to be. Now, people generally love the, the remodel story. That's why HGTV is so, so popular. We love the story of redemption and renewal, something old and broken and transformed into something new and complete. 
It's beautiful. It's romantic. It's even better with a tear-jerking backstory. And the story in the HDTV world always learns, you, you learn of the struggle first, that backstory, that where the pain is. You learn of broken pipes. You learn of flock wallpaper. You learn of painful interior walls, of rat infestations. You learn of building codes. You, you learn of high cost, zeros on the end of the estimate. And then you walk through, or they walk through this romantic demolition day where everything is stripped back down to the bones of, of the house or the apartment. And then work can begin once the foundation and the structure is sound. And then you get this, this final reveal. And the sake of the TV show, the sake of HDTV, they, they skim over the process quickly because it's not that interesting. The effort, the work, the money, the sacrifice, and the mess is all glossed over in mere moments. But in reality, it's slow going. Screws strip, the dust is unbearable, no one is ever having that much fun. But in our context, if we bring God into our lives, and our lives remember, resemble sorry, a house in need of a remodel, then we're gonna have some work to do. Now remember, there's nothing we can do that can make God love us any less or any more. And he welcomes us regardless of how we come to him. But if our lives are like a rundown house when the spirit resides in us, God is gonna to wanna to do some work. He's gonna want us to work through that to-do list, the clean the gutters parallel, the, the clean the windows, to get the moss off the roof, get rid of that rat infestation, that thing that has taken hold, get it under control. Work through the stuff that over time we have become blind to, but are in fact things that we need to divest of ourselves in order to be in full union with him. House remodels are messy. Life remodels are also messy. It takes hard work and it takes time and we're meant to do it in community. We're not meant to do it alone. And in our staff meetings, I often recently started joking about how there's a couple of catchphrases that come up a lot. Marcy uses the word tethered all the time, and I use the word scaffolded all the time. And I think they're great words because they describe what ministry work is like, the work of discipling others, work of doing this thing in community, the idea of being, of being tethered supported, attached to, pulled along by, encouraged and uplifted by the strength of someone else, and scaffolding that provides structure and strength and support, the means to which work can be done, and it provides safety to those around. But it's somewhat temporary. Now, that might not be brief, but somewhat temporary. When you scaffold a child's learning, you support, you encourage, but you provide space for them to also try and sometimes fail and also succeed. As time goes on, you ease back. The support of others is really important. But just to be clear, I'm not trying to imply that everyone here needs a full life remodel. I'm not suggesting this church needs a full remodel either. I'm not saying everything needs to be stripped back to the bones. I'm not saying that. But as we continue through this beginnings of this season of transition for us as a church, some of us may need the Holy Spirit to do some form of a remodel on our heart and life. Some, some, some structural changes might be needed. But many of us just need some renovating, if you like. We're building on a foundation that is already well established. We're building on work that has been done. We're not throwing out the old for the new. We're sharpening, we're honing, we're updating, we're clearing away the clutter that we've become blind to work really that as believers we should be constantly doing. Repentance, forgiveness, humility are key components 
of renovating ourselves. True understanding of the work Jesus of work of Jesus is to offer forgiveness to others because it shows the work of forgiveness that has occurred in you. And it can be hard, but it's worth it. And now what Jesus is telling his disciples is that God's spirit is coming and not just available for the select few. It's not just for the especially skilled or the extremely holy. It's coming to fill all the followers of Jesus. And in the verse that follows that promise, something miraculous happens. Verse 9, after, see, after saying this, he was taken up into a cloud, Jesus, while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. And as they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. So there's great power in the Holy Spirit, but there's also great power in this ascension moment. It's much more than a fairy tale ending. We often focus on the cross and the forgiveness of sin. And that is, that is right and that is important, but it's only part of the story. It's not the end of the story. If we, if we focus on the cross only and, and the resurrection only, and we treat the ascension as just as kind of a neat bow that sort of, sort of ties the story together or, or a fairy tale ending or something like that, we're not fully embracing the whole of that gospel message. If Jesus had risen from the dead, but then just lived till he was 80 and, and passed peacefully in his sleep, it was the same fate that we would suffer. But the result of sin and death, and, and Jesus conquered that, so his ascension to heaven is an important event that further shows his defeat of death and sin. The good news doesn't end at the cross, it doesn't end at the empty tomb, it includes the ascension, the coming of the Spirit, the eventual return of Christ. Jesus is taken up into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the heavenly Father, seated upon the throne and preparing a place for us to be with him too. It solidifies our future with Jesus. It means heaven is our future, a future that is secure, a future that fills us with hope and peace, no matter where we're going, what we're going through in this world, no matter what sort of trials or challenges we're currently facing. Not looking back, but looking forward learning from what we know, learning from what we've seen, and not just dwelling on it. That phrase, why are you just standing here staring into heaven? You have a job to do. In chapter 2, he, he really follows through on that promise. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together on one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. It filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. Everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. The promise that Jesus is talking of back in chapter 1 is fulfilled in the next page in a dramatic, incredible, awe-filled way. The promise of the Holy Spirit leads to the power of the Holy Spirit and the ascension, and that in turn leads to that final point that there's a great purpose is given. Now, bear with me. It reminds me of, of a, I think it's a Spider-Man quote. With great power comes great responsibility. And I think it's kind of true. We do have a responsibility to do good, godly good, with the things we've been gifted with, whatever they are. God gives us great power as he fills us with his spirit. It's not just for fun, though. There's a great purpose to fulfill. In, in four chapters of Exodus, we, we see Bezalel living out this purpose in building the temple, following the plans that God laid out very specifically to draw others to him. 
and the purpose of the Spirit in our lives is similar, probably looks different. The disciples themselves took a while to get it too. Earlier in that passage, it says, um, so the apostles were with Jesus, and they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore the kingdom? They missed the point. Not for the first time. They're still worried about the earthly kingdom. But slow on the uptake. The disciples haven't fully understood that Jesus' kingdom was something that goes way beyond the Hebrew people. And I think Jesus is probably like, you know, what do I have to do? You know, I've taught on my kingdom. I've used these visual illustrations. I've shown you my kingdom through these amazing things, through healings and the meals with the marginalized, through relationships with the poor. I gave my life for this kingdom. I walked out of the grave inaugurating this kingdom. And you are still getting my kingdom confused with the kingdom of Israel, an earthly kingdom. You're still missing the point. You're almost there, but you're missing the point. It'd be like leaving this morning and walking home and thinking, I think what the message was, was we need a new kitchen. No. And I can just imagine like Jesus being like, I'm out, I'm done. I've said all I can do. You know what, I'll send someone else. The Holy Spirit will finish this lesson plan because I've used all the words I have. Um, a number of years ago, we um, took a family trip to, to England. And um, during that time, we spent a week-ish, I think, in, in Spain. And at some time later, um, Stanley was, gosh, I forget, Stanley, how old you were? four, maybe, something like that, I don't know, maybe younger, three, and he was telling me about this thing, you know, he said, remember, remember dad, remember, remember how they, we were in the yellow bus, what are you talking about, you know, remember the yellow bus, and then, and there were the bags, I don't know what you're talking about, you know, the yellow bus, and you know, you know, Grandad was there, and Nanny was there, and we were there, nope, I said, and it was really hot, I'm like, what, a yellow bus, I'm thinking like a school bus, Finally, the, the penny drops. And the yellow bus was a yellow minivan that picked us up from the airport and took us to the rental car place. That was the highlight of our trip to Spain. <laughs> Talk about missing the point. In response to the disciples' impatience, missing the point questions. Jesus, and I can only imagine this isn't like in a calm, only Jesus could say this kind of way, says in verse seven, the Father alone has authority to set those dates and times. They're not for you to know. They are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He clarifies the point that the purpose of the Spirit in our lives is to be a witness to tell people about Jesus. And a witness just tells people what they've seen, what they've heard, what they've experienced. You don't have to remember cute lines and phrases. It's not really about a formula. It's not really about knowledge. It's about relaying personal experience. The work of believers, the work of the saints, is actually somewhat pedestrian. Just tell people about him. Tell people about the change he has made in your lives, about the peace he offers. Pray together. Worship together in unity. The work is actually fairly simple. We make it complicated. Last week we talked about how people share about what they care about. They share about what they care about. Whatever the new music is, or that new restaurant you found, or whatever it is. You want to share what's blessed you so they can bless others. That's just kind of a natural thing. Um, for many years prior to moving to New York, I was part of a CrossFit gym. 
Now, the rule of CrossFit is opposite to the rule of Fight Club. And the first rule of CrossFit is to tell everyone that you do CrossFit. And then the second rule is you tell them again to do CrossFit. People talk about what's important to them, what fires them up, what they've experienced, and they want to share that joy with someone else. Now, in case you didn't realize, the gospel is more important than CrossFit. But careful where you repeat that. Just tell people how Jesus has changed your life. If we believe that Jesus has done what he said, why aren't we? It's really as simple as that. The Spirit resides in us to shape and to guide us and to change us so that we're able to tell others of him everywhere. So we need to be open to his leading. Jesus talks about Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And we can think of those in a variety of terms, but if, to help, Jerusalem could be a, the neighborhood. Who are the people you see day in, day out, week in, week out? Those people that are close around you. Judea, maybe, maybe the city or the state. People that you have to go out of your way to interact with. Samaria, maybe beyond state lines, perhaps. People you maybe don't have commonality with. They look different, think different, vote differently. Maybe they enjoy different things. And then the ends of the earth, which is a little more literal. But as we wrap up, I want to assure you of a couple of things. If you are a follower of Jesus, God's spirit dwells within you. It means you have the same power that raised Jesus from the tomb, and it lives inside you to help you live a courageous, strong, and victorious life. So whatever you're facing right now, whether it's tough or whether it's easy, God's Spirit is inside of you, and it is greater than anything in this world can throw at you if you lean and trust in Him. And God's Spirit dwells within you for a beautiful reason, to be a clear witness, a beautiful billboard pointing people to the purpose, to the person of Jesus. So who in your life needs to hear about how much Jesus loves them? God's spirit within you will help you share his love with them. Will you pray with me? Father, you give us so many things. Your promises are good. They are dependable. They are real. We thank you for the gift of the Spirit. We thank you that you choose to dwell within us. We thank you that you choose us to be your vessels. We ask that you take our imperfections, you take our failings, you take our mess, and you help us remodel. You help us to become more like you so we can draw others to you. Father, we love you. Help us see you. Help us become more like your son, Jesus. Amen.